0: Welcome to our podcast series, Talking With Traders, hosted by expert trader Garth McKenzie in London, from where he's interviewing various guests on the topic of trading. This is the final episode of Talking With Traders for 2021. And for this episode, we've decided to do something a little different. A few weeks ago, I caught up with Richard Thomason, a private trader from Cape Town, with a long history of successfully trading his own capital. At the end of that interview, he made a suggestion that he would like to interview me as a guest on my own podcast series. I thought it was a good idea, and our sponsors IG Markets agreed. So Richard and I swapped seats for this podcast with him as the host and me as the guest. It was fun to be on the other side of the mic for a change, answering questions as opposed to asking them. I really enjoyed chatting to Richard and thought he asked some excellent questions and made a really great host. So without further delay, here's the podcast with Richard Thomason interviewing me, Garth McKenzie.
1: Joining us for this week's Talking with Traders on his own podcast is none other than the usual host, Garth McKenzie. So Garth is a financial markets trader and founder of TradersCorner.co.za, and him and his family have been based in London for around two years now. But he still runs and manages Traders Corner with Andrew Todd, who's his business partner based in South Africa. Garth also ran a successful TV show on Summit TV, which is now Business Day TV or BDTV Channel 412 for around 10 years. He also does some other work now, which we'll get into in the conversation. And Garth has been running this podcast with IG Markets for about four seasons now. So we into the fourth season with some great insights and learnings from his guests so Garth, thanks for giving me the opportunity to do this. I really feel that the listeners have a lot to to learn from you. Um, as you've been doing this for sort of over half your life now, I suppose.
0: Yeah, thanks, Richard. It's great. <laughs> it's great to be on the other side of the mic for a change. Um, and I'm glad that you proposed the idea to to do the interview with you as the as the host and me as the guest. I think it's gonna be a good conversation. Um, and yes, as you said, I've been trading for yeah but more than half my life, I suppose. I I first got interested when I was a teenager um, and my formal life in the market started in 2001 we'll get into that but yeah that's that was 20 years ago so more or less half my life ago that that I've been formally involved in the markets
1: Fantastic, Garth. You know, I read your your bio on on your website, and um, you know, as you say, you've you've had a keen interest in share since a teenager. And I I recall you telling the story of being interested in in your dad's uh, newspaper, and you studied commerce, and then. Joined a small futures broking business in London, actually, at the Mm. time. And after that, you ran a a retail derivatives desk at BOE Stockbrokers. And I'd I'd like to get into some of the stories on that from 2002 to 2008 before then heading out on your own. Could you just walk the listeners briefly through your, your journey and sort of how you came to where you are now?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So you're right. I started, uh, my interest in the markets first spawned when I was about 14 or 15 years old. And the the this backstory is that we used to, uh, I went to Parktown Boys High School in Joburg and we used to play cricket and rugby against Case and St. John's as our big opposition in in Houghton. And one Saturday morning when my dad was driving me through to play cricket against Case uh we we were driving through Houghton and you go go past all these big mansions you know it's quite an affluent suburb hmm. and and uh he and i said to my dad what do these people do to live in a fancy neighborhood like this and he he just you know throw away line he said oh boy they they probably all stockbrokers and I said, well, what does a stockbroker do? Tell me about it. And and he started to tell me the story about shares and how you can buy a piece of a company and get a dividend and the share price goes up and down and you can buy and sell the shares. And I asked a few more questions and I think he obviously picked up the interest and He said, Well, I'll tell you what I'll do is I'll bring the newspaper home every evening from work. Uh, Now, this was 1994 odd. So there was no online share trading or anything. Like, if you needed to know the the share price, you had to wait for the newspaper the next morning. So he would bring home the newspaper every evening. And after dinner, we'd sit around the dining room table. And I would, uh, you know, we picked out about 20 or 30 shares that we followed. And we used to actually hand draw the graphs of these shares and follow them up and down. And we we traded with a, a fictitious make-believe portfolio of a hundred thousand rand of, of play play money. And we did that. And I loved it. We we sat every evening after dinner drawing charts and looking at the news and all of that sort of thing. And um, that went on for a while. And we actually did quite well on our on our fictitious portfolio. And uh after a while, I said to my dad, I was about 16 at the time, I said, you know, I'd really like to try and do this for real now. And so we went along and opened a stockbroking account, which was with BP Bernstein uh, back then. I think it's still, I think the firm is still around actually. And uh, I I put all of my life savings, which was all of 3000 Rand that I'd saved up working weekends and school holidays. I had a a job as a sort of a salesman on the weekends in a store called Stacks, where we sold fax machines and printers and, and that sort of thing. So that was um my, you know my weekend job. And I saved up this money and I put all of it into the stock market and I into the stockbroking account and then started to trade shares. <clears throat> and it wasn't a very fruitful exercise. It was, in fact, it was a disaster. I <laughs> uh, I quickly learned that your know, three thousand rand is not enough money to to play with. The transaction costs just eat you, and um, and, and second of all, that trading with real money is very different to trading with um, with play play money. Mm-hmm. So that was the that, that was sort of the baptism, I guess. And I lost money, and I'd continue to lose, and then I would you know work weekends and school holidays and save up some more money and recharge my account again and try again. And I was just making all sorts of mistakes, constantly making mistakes and constantly losing money, and um, and then I discovered warrants in about 1998, always, and, yeah. and, and 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 I mean for me that was just an, an even faster way to lose my money because it was yeah. it was like uh, shares on on steroids, you know, so with the leverage and all that. So that didn't end well either. And by the time I was. About 20 or 21 years old, and I'd been sort of uh, five years of proper uh, trading with real money, if you like. I worked out at that stage that I'd actually lost enough money that I could have bought a Golf GTI brand new out the box if I'd have sure. rather just kept that money in a bank account instead of putting it in the stock market. So that, that was a bit of a disappointment, but I, and I never gave up. I always figured it. But there was a way to do this, I just hadn't figured out the the recipe. Uh, and I just needed to be persistent. And at some stage, I'd figure, figure it out. Um, so that was the background. And then yes, you, you mentioned that I had a job in London. So that the firm that I was with, it, it, there's actually a little bit of a story to that as well. But um, it it wasn't actually in london the firm was based in johannesburg but they had an office in london which i was oh, okay. sent to for for a while but in in a quickly bef- to tell you how i got that job you know, i was still in my final year at university studying my bcom degree and in the third year you don't have a lot of lectures uh so i had quite a lot of spare time and i had been working for for another company through my varsity days like an online newspaper and i was just editing news articles and that that type of stuff and anyway the company closed down actually so i was sitting in my third year of varsity with no job and no income um but all of this time and so i thought well i'm going to try and see if i can't get my foot in the door into a stockbroking firm because I, I, it's what I wanted to do ultimately once I graduated. So I figured let's try and get a start and get a, a job in the market. So that I, I literally went to the yellow pages and I started at A, B, C, D, and I phoned every broker in town. And it was that was two thousand and one, so it was a bear market. The, the dot com bubble had mm-hmm. burst. Um, you year, know, it yeah. was tough times. Market stockbroking firms just were not hiring, but there was one firm. That where I phoned and I spoke to the boss and it was a firm called DealSmith Securities. And this guy said he, he might have something for me to do, you know, maybe pop in one evening and we'll have a chat and see about it. So I went there on one Wednesday evening after the markets had closed and all dressed up and what have you. And I sat in the boardroom and the boss came and we had a nice meeting and talked about things. And I'm just a youngster at this stage. I'm 20, 20 or 21 years old and uh, is still in varsity. And he said to me, he, he, it was a futures broking firm, right? And he said to me, do you, you, you know what, uh, do you know what futures are? And I said, well, not really. I know what shares are and I, I know what warrants are because I've been burnt by those, but I don't really know much about futures. And he said to me, well, let me put it in terms that you'll understand. He said, you, if you think of shares, that's like a Volkswagen Beetle. Warrants are like a Golf GTI and futures are like a Porsche. And we trade futures in this firm, so I said, "Oh, that's that's awesome! You know, sign me up for that then." And and uh, anyway, we had a nice meeting, and we left. And I, I, he said to me, will you know give me a week or so, and I'll come back to you and and, and see if there's something we can you know employ you to do on a part time basis." Anyway, a week came and went, and I heard nothing back back from him. Uh, another week came and went, so I phoned back, and I said, "You know hi it 's Garth, remember me and he, he said yeah, yeah, I remember you i'm just I've been so busy i'm hell of a sorry i didn't call you back. I uh, just give me another week and i'll come back to you so this happened again. Another week came and went, and i didn't hear back and this happened a few times, and eventually i th- I thought, well, you know what i've got no job uh, no one else in the market has even expressed an interest. This is the only person that's given me a vague Uh, you know, expression of interest. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to phone him every day until he either gives me a job or, or tells me to piss off So, um, so that's what I did actually. And, and eventually he just said, okay, he said, look, just come tomorrow um, and I'll find something for you to do. And, and literally I arrived there one morning and he took me to the dealing room and he said, look, these, this is the dealing room. Those are the dealers. They are the guys to learn from, talk to them, ask questions, learn by osmosis. And when I found something for you to do, I'll come and tell you. And anyway, that's how that basically started. So it was persistence that got me in the door. and um, And eventually, yeah, they employed me on a part-time basis. I was kind of like the jack of all trades i mean i did all sorts of things from making coffee for the dealers to putting up a, a, a tv monitor in the boardroom to running you know cables through the ceiling to, to you know i mean it was all sorts yeah, of things yeah. in, in amongst also learning about the market the runner and, right yeah exactly i was just the yeah, exactly the okay. junior guy but it was great experience and it was it was great fun And, um, anyway, when I, when I graduated varsity, they, they gave me a full-time job. So I started there and then, um, and then it was from there that I went to London. So they had an office in London and I was sent over on a project for about six months, which, uh, which was a great experience. And yeah, soon after I got back from the London experience, the company actually ran into a lot of trouble and ended up being liquidated and closed down and, in, indirectly, I guess that was a, a very interesting thing and a very fortunate experience for me, actually, in the sense that I, I, I was immediately offered another job at BOE Stockbrokers, which uh, I'd come to know some of the people there. In fact, Arthur Buchner, who I interviewed on the season one of this podcast, he was, strangely enough, one of my school teachers who had become a stockbroker. And so I knew him and I was connected to him in the market. And he got in touch with me and he said, listen, I I know your firm's just closed down. We need a youngster on the desk here. Why don't you come and join us? So it was a wonderful opportunity and the door opened. And obviously, I took it with both hands. And that was it. And that was now 2003. And And I ended up effectively running that derivatives trading desk for BOE stockbrokers. We were big on single stock futures at the time. And and as a young guy, that was a super opportunity because effectively 2003 was the start of a new bull market, which ran until 2008. And over those five years, the JSE went up about 400%. In that time, So it sure. was an amazing time to be in the market. It was a real bull market Leverage. in South Africa. Yeah. The, yeah, I mean, the last true bull market that we really had in South Africa, actually, where everything just was going up and there's lots of volume and it was exciting and there was lots of foreign involvement in the market. So yeah. it was a superb opportunity as a young guy to get that uh, and to land that job. And it was great. And I, I was there for about six, six and a half years. Um, so just to pick up the, on some yeah. of
1: those um, stories there, guys. So in in 2008 you had a great year. That was when the markets had actually crashed, right? And I think yeah. that they they even halved that year. But you had you did really well and outperformed. And obviously that's the beauty of you know shorting the market with CFDs or, or or single stock futures. So tell us a bit more about that year. And then I'd also like to pick up on the story that you told and relayed with Andrew, where a client of yours at while at BAE, ran up his account um, from. A, a fairly small account to a, a massively big account, and then it and then managed to lose it again. Mm. So, if you could just take us through those two stories, I think yeah, that
0: would be yeah, abso- absolutely. So, first of all, yeah, you know, 2008 uh, obviously was the year of the financial crisis when the US housing market bubble burst and it had massive ripple effects throughout the financial markets. Um, and <clears throat> you're right, I did make money that year trading. Uh, Look, fortunately, I think I'd scaled back the risk that I was taking a lot by that stage. Somewhere, though I was still pretty young, I think somewhere I had the common sense to realize that the party was coming to an end and paid down all debt and actually took a lot of money out of the derivatives market and used it to buy underlying shares uh, but that that money that I was still left trading with, um, I traded actively. But you you talked about going short and whatever, which yes, you can obviously do that with CFDs and with futures. But I think if I think back to two thousand and eight, a lot of the money that I made actually was out of just capturing the volatility, uh, both both yeah. long and short. But I think more of it actually, funnily enough, was made on the long side because we had these days where the the JSE would literally drop. in a day, and then it would bounce back 10% the next day. There was unbelievable volatility in the market throughout 2008. So, you know, with relatively small positions, if you were able to capture that volatility correctly, there was quite a lot of money to be made. And I think that's effectively what I was able to do in in two thousand and eight was to capture that volatility and um, and been a bit active and, around and, it as well.
1: And were you using option structures for that, or what? What was your?
0: No, not to? not at that stage. It was just pure vanilla longs and shorts. So I was trading okay. single stock futures with a directional view. Okay. So yeah, no options. Yeah. All right. At that stage i hadn't i hadn't actually begun trading options in my career by that stage it, that only came later for me okay
1: and then tell us about the story where you you had a client which came to you with some money and captured the the you know the part of the bull run and then overstayed the welcome a bit too long and and the lessons that we can take out of that particular story
0: yeah this is such a fascinating story so you know it, we 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 had we used to do these presentations uh, to clients to, to, to introduce them to single stock futures because it was a new product in 2003, 2004. And this one guy came to one of my presentations and expressed interest and he opened an account with us and he put 600,000 Rand into the trading account, which was a decent start. Was a, there was a big account for us at that stage. And for a couple of months, he played the market and he figured out how these futures worked. And then he said, right, that looks like I figured this out. I think I, I know what I'm doing now. So he put another 2.4 million rand into the account. So in total, about 3 million rand of starting capital, which was, you know, that's good money, right? And, and he was a wealthy client uh, to, to begin with. But, you know, 3 million rand in 2004 money, you know, that was that was really decent. Yeah. Um, anyhow... Over the course of the bull market from that time until 2008, he ran up this account just by growing it and effectively putting leverage upon leverage upon leverage. And you can only do this in a very, very linear bull market kind of an environment. But effectively, he took his mark-to-market profits, which is like money that gets paid into your account every day um, through the leverage. And he would then use that to buy more, to add to the winners and effectively make his exposure bigger. So it's the classic thing of run your winners and add to your winners. But as I said, it it works very well in a very linear bull market environment. And that's what we had from 2004 until 2008. You know, if you go back and you look, there there were some corrections, but by and large, the JSE went up in a very linear fashion during that time. And anyway, to, to cut a long story short, he, turned this 3 million rand of capital into 140 million rand in 2008. And that was just before the financial crisis occurred. And I remember you know, chatting to the client and saying, yeah, there's, there's these storm clouds on the horizon and the subprime, subprime mortgages and CDOs and all of these new terms that we were starting to learn about. And, uh, I said, you know, gee, don't you think it's time to maybe take a bit of money off the table? Because also one of the rationale for saying to him to take money off is that in those days, interest rates were at 14%. So it was very high by today's standards. And and, yeah, your borrow cost on futures was huge. And, And this guy's account was leveraged about three, three or just over three times. So I think on 140 million Rand account size, He had nearly half a billion rand of exposure to the market. And I said, you know, at 14% interest, this thing's going to, you're going to be spending 70 million rand just in interest costs alone to hold these positions if the market goes sideways. And it might not go sideways. It might even go down. And he just said, no, no, it's still strong. There's plenty of dividends to cover the financing costs and things are still good. And I think also one of the problems, one of the reasons he was not keen to take the profits was because he didn't want to pay the tax because it was an unrealized gain at that stage. And um, anyway, the market then crashed. And it, 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 you, I mean, you've seen it. The JSE lost probably half its value, if not more than half of its value, in about a sort of six or seven month period between the middle of well, late 2008 and into early 2009 when the market bottomed. And in essence, he that 140 million Rand got completely wiped out. I think by the time we eventually closed his last position, he had about 75,000 Rand left in the account. And that was it, so, 100, so, so three million to 140 million back basically to naught. Um, <laughs> it was just I mean it was- I love
1: that story I mean there's there's so much you can learn from that and I yeah. and, and, and you did say he was quite a wealthy client you know so he yeah. he probably it was a bit of a game to him and you know yeah. he he didn't get sort of uh, to the point where he'd never trade again or something like that but but yeah. these sort of losses can really damage you psychologically and I heard another story from uh, I think it was Trader Petri that uh, one of his colleagues or someone was trading Coronation leveraged and got totally carried out and and apparently the guy doesn 't trade uh anymore you know yeah, um, but yeah, I mean, I think a lot of lessons in that you know you know, once you 've built up your account you you really need to know when you, when you're going to exit and uh, yeah. so that's, that's a good a good lot of money to have made and and you need to know when you 're going to call it a day i think it it is. <laughs>
0: I look I mean that that's' it's, it's a phenomenal story and I always look back at it and I think gee you know I'd, I'd love to do that myself the first part of the story and you know, not the end um, <laughs> but I, I sort of think to myself you know I don't think I would have the balls to be able to be that aggressive and no, uh, no. And, and I just don't you know I, and it, it was unbelievable I mean I, you know I think it was James Gubb who I interviewed on this podcast la- last year and he said one of his great sayings was that it, it takes guts to be a greedy pig. I love that, yeah. I I always love that saying. And it always made me think of this client. You know, he had guts. I mean, I've never seen anybody with guts Mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. Because in that time, you would
1: have had a lot of uh, hair-raising days where you, you know, you lurching up, lurching back and not knowing what to do, you know.
0: Absolutely. I mean, there had been, you know, prior to the top in 2008, there had been some fairly big volatile swings and there were times where this guy's account went you know he'd had like 50 40 percent drawdowns on the account so you you're losing you know 20 30 40 million rand in a drawdown um, and then it came back every time and I guess that was the thing right he every time the market bounced back and he felt confident until and it didn't. until it didn't exactly and yeah. and then and then that crash happened and I just think you know it, he didn't believe that it was ever going to go as badly as it did. And of course, you know, it was, it was tough in the end, I was ending up having to force sell his positions out, you know, so that he didn't drop below zero, because that's obviously something that can happen when you're on leverage, you you can lose more money than what is in your account. So it yeah. was, it was a very, very interesting time, but a very sad ending to what was a, a really good relationship and a great story with that client. Sure.
1: So a lot of, I mean, uh, I read the other day one of the trading coaches has been just mentoring someone who just lost five hundred thousand dollars, mm. and you know the market has has been going sort of big growth breakout for a long time, and now just those sort of things are starting to falter, mm. and you're seeing the Nasdaq not quite work out as it as it has in the past, and and things changing. So, um, listeners, just yo, watch watch out for that. Um, you know, in your own trading. Garth, yeah. I'd like to pick up on your on your TV show a bit, right? So, you mm-hmm. know, I watched this thing for the best part of 10 years as well. And you used the tagline Prom- promoting proper trading principles, if, if I remember correctly. Yeah. And, um... You know, so it taught me a lot. And uh, you, you started with, I think, 100,000 Rand of your own money, and then it was 250,000 Rand after a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And all the proceeds you made from your trades, which you documented live with Julieta or whoever the host was yeah. uh, on your slide deck every week, and you donated that to charity after paying the tax. So take us through some of the highlights of that. I, I just remember each trade you, you always, um, made it look very compelling and simple. And um, yeah, take us through some of the highlights of that stretch.
0: Yeah. So that TV show, it started in 2009 uh, after I'd left BOE. So I decided at that point, the financial crisis had happened. Um, I'd lost my biggest client. <laughs> and, um, and 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 I, I kind of knew as well that I didn't want to be a corporate guy for my whole life. I wanted to get out and do my own thing and trade my own capital. But I also wanted to try and make a difference in help others to learn how to trade because you know, in reality, trading is actually reasonably simple, but we make it complicated for ourselves. And if you can get a couple of basics, right, then, you know, you can save yourself from disaster <clears throat> and you can even make good money. And with that TV show, what I figured was that at, at the time there was, you had CNBC and Bloomberg and, and business, there was Summit TV at that stage where they were all financial Uh, channels on TV in South Africa that you had access to, but it was all very much uh, aimed at more longer term investing and um, growth rates and dividend yields and all of this, which is of course very important stuff. But nobody really was talking to the short term trader, the guy that's trading CFDs or futures. And I felt there was a gap in the market for somebody to to fill. So I put my hand up and I basically took the idea to Summit TV and I said, this is what I want to do. I want to I want to trade with my own money. I'll do. I'll create all the content for the show. Um, I'll I'll financially back it, and I'll be accountable because that was one of the the critical criteria that I wanted was to be accountable. I actually wanted to be the guy that goes back each week. And says, you know, this trade worked or didn't work, and we had to stop it up and lost a bit of money, because it, it used to annoy me that a lot of the talking heads on TV would go there and make a stock recommendation, and then it would fall in a, into pieces. And but you would never hear about that again. There was never exactly. any there was never any yep. accountability, right? And I, I wanted to actually be someone that was accountable, that would go before yep. the audience and say, you know what, last week I said you should buy X Y Z share, and you know what, it didn't work, and we had to stop that position out and we lost some money on it. Um, And through doing that, the the, the promoting proper trading principles uh, motto that you referred to was really exactly that. It was trying to show people a responsible way of trading: how to size your positions correctly, how to manage your risk, um, you know, and and how to use these derivative instruments properly so that you can make money out of them, but also so that you you use them in a responsible way so that you don't get absolutely carried out. Because far too often people get you know big starry eyed at the idea of leverage and futures or CFDs that you can gear up. And they only think of the one side of that, which is the, the the upside when things go well. But there's also the magnified downside when things go badly. So the idea around the TV show really was exactly that. It was teach people how to do it in a responsible fashion. Um, I would fund it and I would donate any profits that I made to charity at the end of the year. And it was a win, win, win all around. So I got the exposure. It was a wonderful marketing uh, window shop window for my business. And it was good content for the TV channel, it was useful for the viewers, and it was beneficial to the charities that made some money, that, that got donations each year from the profits that I'd made. And yeah, that went from 2009 until 2019, when I left the country and moved to the UK. And over that time, um, yeah, I mean, I, I racked up profits of about nearly half a million rand in the total total period which were donated to charity over those 10 years that's fantastic
1: with just that small grub steak, wow man yeah that's it and um, it was
0: also remember it was resetting it every year so every I, it year wasn't as if i same amount yeah, so I didn't have the benefit of compounding it year on year on year because I'd reset each year. But if you, yeah. you know, if, if I had have changed the model maybe and said that I was allowed to start with two hundred and fifty thousand back in the day and then run it for ten years, you know, it could have been it could have grown into a substantial amount of money, had I had the benefit of annual compounding on year on year on year. You're listening to Talking with Traders, a podcast series brought to you by IG a world-leading online trading and investment provider. If you haven't checked out the IG online trading platform, please do so and visit IG.com. Also, make sure you subscribe to the podcast series on your favorite podcast app or website by clicking on the subscribe button and you'll be notified weekly as we release new episodes.
1: So one of the things I learned from the show was how to correctly position size from you, actually. And it was it was in one of the books, Van Thorpe or something like that. But I didn't quite understand it. And you used to run through this with absolute rigor with every trade. So maybe just take a, a hypothetical, say, 100,000 and maybe a hypothetical amount of 100 rand a share. Hmm. How would you size a position using single stock futures or CFDs, whatever?
0: Yeah, so, so good example, right? So you've got a 100,000 rand trading account what the rule always is, is that you risk no more than 2% of your capital. So what that means is that you're not going to lose more than 2,000 rand of your 100,000 rand capital on an individual trade um, and this is where people sometimes get confused. They think that the value of the position must be 2,000 Rand. That That's not the case. It's the, it's the amount that you can lose or the amount of risk that you take on the on the trade is 2,000 Rand in this case, which is 2% of your capital amount. Now, if we take the example just to keep it with round figures, as you say, let's look at a share that's um, 100 Rand. And let's say, for example, that you're going to buy the share at 100 Rand and you're going to set a stop loss at 95 rand. Now, what that means is that your risk per share is 5 rand per share before your stop loss gets hit, and you're wanting to lose no more than 2,000 rand. So what you do is you take the 2,000 rand, which is the capital at risk, and you divide it by the risk per share, which is 5 rand per share, and that gives you 400 shares or 400 CFDs. So effectively, you'll then buy 400 Shares or 400 CFDs of this company at 100 rand, and you'll have a stop loss which is five rand lower. Okay, and if it gets stopped out, well then you've got you lose 400 shares times five rand, which is two thousand rand, and therefore you've lost no more than two percent of your capital on that on that trade, and that's it. I mean, it's it's really a pretty simple calculation, but it's one that most retail traders fail to do and it's also where they come short a lot of the time
1: yeah and i mean you have to be rigid with that stop loss as well once that's hit you can't sort of be patient and <laughs> you've got to really cut it and move on to the next opportunity mm-hmm. and and you know I often um looked at your 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 program and thought oh this guy got it wrong it looked like you know but but that's trading right i mean you you just want a framework that's personal to you with your style where you can, and I think you were aiming for three, three is to one winners to losers overall. Yeah. Um, You just want a positive expectancy. So when you get it right, you want to let it run. When you get it wrong, you want to get out quickly and say, well, you know what? That's fine. It did look compelling at the time, but it didn't work out. Let's move on to the next one and put that one behind us. Hmm. Yeah.
0: No, that's right. Uh, you know, not, you're not, never going to get every trade right. Nobody does. Not even the top traders in the world get every oh. trade every trade right. They make mistakes. We all make mistakes. Um, but as long as you keep your losses small when you get a trade wrong, then that's fine. That's just part of trading. Uh, the key is to keep the losses small, but try and maximise the winners as much as you can. And, yeah. you know, my, my own personal hit rate is just a little bit better than 50-50. I think I get about 55% of my trades right on average mm-hmm. and 45% of them wrong. But the key really is to, to make sure that on the 45% of trades that I'm getting wrong, that I only lose a little bit. And on the other, the 55% of the trades that I get right, try and make, you know, s- substantially more on those winners than what I lose on the losers. And net-net, you come out – as a winner but it's it's accepting yep. that you know, not every trade is going to work out there are going to be losing trades and that's just part of the business of trading there's nothing to be ashamed of and i think that's where a lot of people go wrong is they, they want to be right and oh. is the, you know do you want to be right or do you want to make money because exactly. it's and not you can always find the same. Someone
1: thing. who always gives you a reason to hold on, you know, yeah. this fundamental or this, you know, it's, yeah. it's confirmation bias coming into it, and yep. you just got to keep executing your system, you know. Yeah. So tell us a bit more about how you trade. You're you're a classical technical guy, right? So you know, I I absolutely love charting. So I think it's a it's a great record of the collective psychology of markets, and and price and volume are really the only truth that you get. You, you know, you can derive oscillators and all that sort of stuff, but mm-hmm. The, the print that you get at the end of the day or every minute or whatever. It's, it, it, it really sometimes speaks to me. Uh, you know, you almost know it's where it's going to go sometimes. And other times I actually can't read a chart at all. It's like Greek or Latin to me. Mm. Um, but, but you, you know, you have a great way of conveying setups to the listeners. Um, as I said before, that you made it so looked so very compelling at the time that, you know, you almost had to, had to put that, you know, you had a straight line and it, it was going to follow that trend or whatever. What's the process you go through when you look for trading opportunities?
0: Yeah, it's a good question. So yeah, on the JSE, um, it's a small market. It's very shallow market nowadays. So I can scan through my watch list of the JSE stocks uh, pretty quickly, looking for setups. But if I, I'll, I'll tell you how I go about looking for opportunities offshore, rather because it's a broader market and there's more opportunities there. So part of my process is on the weekends I have a, a routine that I go through where I'm looking. Uh, I've got your know, watch lists created of various stocks that I watch in the US and ETFs and so on. Um, you have to kind of filter it down because there's so much available. There's so many stocks that it, it can be a little bit like trying to drink out of a fire hose. So you've, you've actually got to have filters in place to try and s- sort of narrow down the universe of stocks that you're going to look at and then filter it further and further until you distill out your handful of shares that meet certain criteria. So as an example, on the weekend, I will uh, filter through the S&P 500 shares, and I'll look for the shares that are trading above their 50-day moving average, for example, or I'll look for the ones that are trading above their 50-day and their 15-day moving average. And effectively, by doing that, you kind of narrow it down. And that limits, or that, that certainly reduces the number of stocks that I have to go through. And then- there's that, that, that mechanical part of it, but then a lot of what I do is actually I just use my eyes. I look and I scan through these charts, you know, just literally clicking next, next, next in this chart list. And the interesting thing is that with an experienced eye, and once you've done this long enough and you've looked at enough charts, you, yeah. you the patterns almost jump off the page at you. Um, yeah. It and it, and it's it's one of those if you've ever read the book Blink by Malcolm Gladwell he talk he talks about thin slicing and how experts in their field can identify things and they've just got this intuition this gut instinct that they you know nobody else without that level of experience would have. Uh, and if I liken it to something similar, I mean, I've got an, an uncle who has a doctorate in uh, in zoology and he's been involved in wildlife his whole life. And you go for a game drive with this guy, it is unbelievable. He's so interesting, but not because he spots the lions and the rhinos. He, he spots the tiny little insect on a tree or some mm-hmm. little bug, you know, and and then he can tell you all about it. And you think, how does, how does a guy like this have the ability to identify these things with such ease and it's just experience he's got the the, the yeah. experience and the, the, you know decades of doing this and i guess it's the same thing in in looking at charts you know if you look at charts all day and that's what you you've done for you know 10 or 20 years eventually you start to recognize patterns they and, and as i say to you they literally jump off the page at you and and that's part of my process on the weekend is literally I go through the charts and I'll spend half a second on each chart. Next, yeah. next, next, next. And until you find that one where the pa- the pattern literally jumps off at you, it can be like a triangle pattern or a flag or a breakout that looks like it's about to occur or whatever. But those are the ones that are then st- sort of write down on a list. It's like, okay, that one, the next one. And then at the end of that little process, then I've effectively you know, created a list of maybe 20 or 30 or 40 stocks, which grabbed my attention. And then I'll go and look at those ones a little bit more closely and try and identify the opportunities to trade them. And then it's a case of going into the new week with specific ideas and levels. So I'll know where I'm going to buy a particular stock or short it, I'll know how many I'm going to buy or sell. I'll know where my stop loss needs to be. I'll know where my target is. And it's all done, all of this research is done outside of market hours um, because that's when you can do your, your clearest thinking. And then effectively, you enter the day with a, 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 a plan, a game plan. And you enact that plan on the day. And I've found through through my years of experience that those types of trades are generally the ones that work most often. The impulsive trades that I do, and unfortunately, I still fall into this trap from time to time, you you know because the markets are a bit addictive and that there's always movement and there's always something happening, and you you might look at something and say oh wow that looks you know like it's an opportunity or but it, those impulsive decisions actually I find are the ones that cost me money more often than not. Mm-hmm. It's the ones that I've thought out beforehand where I've got a proper strategy and I've done it you know in proper I've thought about it with a clear head. Those are the ones that seem to work best for me, if, if, if I look back over my years of, of trading. Mm.
1: Garth, you used to offer a, a hotel-based course through um, one of the brokers, um, but you've since taken this online, right, as the, as the world evolved. Is, is that course still available to the listeners if they want it, to take it?
0: It is, yeah. So it's, it's called a high probability trading course. And you're right, it was a course that I used to run in South Africa. It was a full day course. And I would hire a, a, a room in a hotel, and uh, and we would, you know, go through it to, to be in person. Typically, get about twenty people to attend the course. Um, it was quite high level, but and, and quite intense. And I, I did well. I mean, I think in the years that I was running that course, I must have trained over two thousand people in South Africa. Um, so it was it was great. But obviously moving to the UK, um, I'm, I don't have the uh, the profile here that I have in South Africa. And and of course, with COVID and what have you, you haven't been able to do physical events anyway. Mm-hmm. So what I've done is I've actually taken that course and I've converted it into an online course. and But I've also not only... Converted it, I've actually updated it as well. So I've gone through the entire material and I've revamped it from start to finish. I've added stuff in, I've taken some other stuff out that wasn't so useful, um, and I've updated all of the examples. And it's also now geared for the US market, actually. So the principles are all exactly the same uh, in terms of the technical setups and the risk. Management and money management scenarios. It's that, those principles are the same, but I've I've tailored it to be more suitable to the U.S. market. And as I say, it's online. There's 28 hours of uh, video. Sorry, eight hours, 28 videos comprising eight hours of of video material. There's 150 assessment questions, and the nice thing about this is that you can do it at your own speed and your own pace. Mm. So yeah, you can, you, you, and you can do it from the comfort of your own home. You can watch the videos over and over again if you want to. You can take the assessments over and over again. So it's actually a far better way of presenting the course than coming and sitting for eight hours in a in a room in Sandton somewhere or in Cape Town and listening to me talk, where you're going to lose a lot of the stuff. You know, by the end of the day, you haven't maybe yeah. managed yeah. to grasp everything, because it's in this online format. Now you can actually. You can take the lectures multiple times if you want to. And you, as I say, you can do the assessments multiple times. And that's available. If you go to my website, uh, traderscorner.co.za, you can uh, click on courses and you'll see that it comes up there uh, with a link to be able to subscribe to that course. And it's it's $199 is the price of the course.
1: Yeah. Wow. I mean, look, uh, and that's for beginners and advanced traders? Something uh, for everyone, I
0: suppose. Yeah, it's it is something for everyone. I you know, I think for beginners, yes. Um, not not total, total beginners. And you know, if you don't know what a share is, then you might find some of the concepts a little bit uh too high level. But if you've got a bit of an, an understanding of what a share is and how the prices move and so on, then you'll find the course very, very useful. It's it's not complicated. Uh, the the yeah. the processes that I follow are actually very simple and I'm a big believer in keeping things simple so th- from that perspective uh, you know i, I basically I'll, I'll walk you through the process that i follow to analyze the market from start mm-hmm. to finish and it's not okay. complicated
1: great look i mean uh, i'd encourage uh, listeners to take the course i, I haven't done it myself but I, I i certainly take a lot of courses and read a lot of books and you know if you can just learn one thing from a course one new thing and add it to your trading arsenal or your your uh, routine then it 's worth it, and you know for and ninety nine dollars if you think what you would lose on a stopped out trade that 's nothing really so mm. um, yeah, go ahead and try that out uh, so i mean garth you've you 've dealt with retail traders throughout your career you know it it's, it's really there 's really a, a a low success rate uh, among traders. Um, we see we've had a really good run in the markets this year and, you know, you've seen a lot of people screenshotting their gains and but but then, you know, things change and the environment changes. What What would you say? and and we know why people are are attracted to the market you know it's, it's the ability to be your own boss and maybe work irregular hours and that's what what's attracted you as well and then mm-hmm. to to spend time with your family when um when you want say and then the ability to work from sort of in, any location in the world or or remotely um do, what are some of the common mistakes you see retail traders making and then would you would you say that it's possible to actually trade for a living without sort of any other source of income?
0: Um, yeah, I'll, I'll answer the last question first and then come to the other. So, is it possible to trade for a living without any other source of income? It, it is possible, but there are a lot of things that need to be in place before you get to that point. Um, the people who I know that trade for a living and don't do anything else, very often they've got a lot of money, So they've either made that out of selling a business or in some other form of work where they've managed to build up a massive capital base. They're typically debt-free, they've got uh, living costs that are quite well under control. Uh, But a lot of them do actually have another source of passive income as well, be that from shares that pay dividends or um, maybe a property portfolio or another business that they might be slightly involved in at a distance. Th- that's what I find with a lot of these guys. They actually have a few fingers in a couple of different pies. Um, but to answer the question, is it possible to trade for a living? Yeah, yes, it is. But it's a hell of a lot more difficult than people think it is. Uh, it's 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 very difficult. I mean, I, I don't trade for a living. The reason I still do courses and run a subscription website and Things like this podcast, which is sponsored and I get paid to do. Now, the reason I do all of this kind of stuff is because I want that risk-free income so that I'm not dependent on trading to pay the bills. Because you know, trading, is it's it's a pressurized game as it is, and it's difficult enough as it is. But when you start adding extra complexities into that, like knowing that the ability for you to pay the bills and put food on the table at the end of the month is all down to whether you trade profitably or not. That is an absolutely inordinate amount of pressure to put on yourself. And you're you, you ultimately set up for failure, unfortunately. When you're under that type of pressure, you're going to start to make mistakes that are going to be, be very costly. So yes, it's possible to trade for a living, but this it, it's certainly not easy. And you need to come at it from with, with a very, very solid background and with a lot of experience as well. That's trading for a living, and then you also asked about uh, retail traders and some of the mistakes that I see them often make. Uh, And there's multiple mistakes that they do make, but I guess some of the most common ones are: a) people come at the market with unrealistic expectations. You you know, I'll I'll often get people emailing me and say, you know, hey, I've I've got two hundred thousand rand, and I'm going to quit my job. I'd like to start trading for a living. (laughs) Um, And I'm just like, please, whatever you do, don't do that because you're going to end up with no money and no job. Um, Guys are just unrealistic about the expectations of of what it takes to trade. And I think that's one of the big things. But then it's also people size their positions incorrectly. They're either too aggressive, which is very often the case, which is where… They can make a lot of money when things go well, but they can also get absolutely carried out when things go badly. And inevitably, that happens at some point. And, and I, I, I hate to say it, but I think that a lot of these young guys that are uh, bragging on Twitter about how much money they've made in meme stocks or cryptocurrencies or whatever, you know, none of these people have ever seen a bear market. and And when it comes, I think they're going to be absolutely smoked. Because you know they're not going to have identified that the market environment has changed and that you don't just buy the dip eventually you know the dip will keep dipping and and unfortunately a lot of the those guys are likely to then keep buying and buy more and effectively get more and more exposed as the the markets move lower. so it can end very very badly for those for those people I think and and this is I mean as I say it's I hate I hate to say it, but that's this, that's the way markets have always worked. And the, my, the psychology that drives markets has never changed. People's greed and fear yeah. and those human emotions never change. They've been around for hundreds of years. And, and, and we're seeing that in the market right now. Uh, the last time we saw this type of euphoria was back in the dot-com bubble. And of course, that didn't end well. And I I think that what we're seeing in certain areas of the market now, maybe in cryptocurrencies, maybe in some of the things like some of these electric vehicle stocks and these meme stocks and things is exactly that. It's like a dot-com bubble and it's it's ultimately, I don't believe that it's sustainable and there's going to be, yeah, I think there'll be tears at at some point and probably quite soon, I think.
1: Fascinating. I mean, I was just talking yesterday uh, to a friend of mine. He he runs with me, and he's probably one of the cleverest guys I know. He's a he's a nuclear physicist, mm. um, a, astronomer, and he, uh, he he was talking about the board Ape yacht club and uh, NFTs, and I think you need forty nine mm. Ethereum to get in there. And yeah, so he's into this whole thing and. Sure. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm probably a bit old school for that sort of stuff, but mm. watching at a distance. Um, Goth, uh, before we wrap up, what are some of the things you battle with still as a, you know, as an experienced trader? You know, I know you into psychology and I've done a lot of reading this year about psychology and I find it fascinating how people all react a certain way or, or think something is worth less today than it was yesterday. Mm. You know, what are some of the things that you still struggle with?
0: I'd say the thing I struggle most with is, is still knowing when to sell because th- th- that for me is the hardest part of trading uh, because you either sell too soon and then watch it keep going up or you sell um, too, yeah. too late or after it's caught, started going down and you've given back all of your profits. So yeah. t- to try and time the exit perfectly is, is, is something I really battle with um, and I guess it's something I'll always battle with. I think every trader battles with that. The, the things that you can control is you know your entries, um, your exits, and your position size. But more than that, you actually can't control. It's, it's out of your hands. All you can control is the way you respond to what the market does. But um, yeah, I mean, keeping losses small, I've got that down pat now. I don't take big losses anymore. Um, getting good entries, I find I can get quite good entries based on technical patterns and identifying good entries. But knowing when to sell, that still is the hardest part of, of trading for me. Um, and and then also in terms of the psychology aspect of things, something that I'm really kind of trying to uh, um, master, maybe get a bit better at, is this whole notion that there's a difference between trading to win and trading not to lose. Um I'm big on risk management. I'm very good at keeping the losses under control, but I find sometimes my adherence to strict risk management can almost be detrimental to me as well. And I'd like to try and, you know, master that in my own trading is this whole notion of trading to win rather than trading not to lose, because I think that's really where the success comes in when you've, when you can master that among other things.
1: And and you know, good traders sometimes actually are are, are fairly confident people, right?
0: Mm. Um, yeah.
1: You have to actually be quite quite confident going to positions, and, and that's right. But but there's a fine line, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, you, confidence and and overconfidence. You need to be careful of. But you're absolutely right. You do need to be confident in this game. You've got to go in with the with a, with a belief that it's probably you know well, it's going to work, but it might not. And either way, you're confident about what you're doing. And I think that that goes for anything thing in life, really. If you're confident about what you're doing, you're, you're probably going to be relatively successful at it. If you're not confident and you're nervous and you, you, you're too cautious, that can also count against you. So yeah, confidence is is very important, but you've got to also manage that so that you, it doesn't become overconfidence.
1: Yeah. Alf, um, where to from here, right? So it's nearing the end of the year. You, you're probably also thinking about what you want to achieve in 2022. What are you busy with now on a day-to-day basis besides trading? Um, and you know, you've you've taken your family over to the UK, and you did mention to me off air that um, it's been a, a bit of an adjustment period. But you you seem to have settled down there now. With, you know, there's this pros and cons of sort of crossing the spread, like you said. Um, where do you intend to take the Garth McKenzie Traders Corner brand next year?
0: Um, Yeah. So so what I'm, uh, at the moment, I'm still, obviously, I'm trading my own capital. I'm running the traderscorner.co.za business. Um, I do a bit of consulting work for Standard Bank online share trading. Also do some stuff with IG Markets, who are the sponsors of this show. Um, I've got the online course. So all of that carries on. Uh, What I am working on in the background is traderscorner.london, which is an offshore offering uh, where I'm basically wanting to Essentially, take what I do with traderscorner.co.za but replicate it for an offshore market and for an offshore audience. Um, I, I think there's an advantage being based in London in that we're five or six hours ahead of New York. And I think that if I could put together a really nice, uh, decent technical analysis report with some trading strategies and straight trading ideas so that it's ready by the time the guys in New York wake up in the morning that can be something really great. And it's a big market to sell into there. So that's something that I'm working on in the background, which I, and obviously that's also going to benefit my South African clients and my South African followers. And I certainly hope that that will be the low hanging fruit that will get this thing started whilst I then try and build an audience in the US as well and in the UK. So I'm working on that in the background. And then the other thing that I'm also doing is I've gotten involved with a startup hedge fund here which I can't, okay. can't uh, talk too much about uh, for regulatory reasons. Um, there's, there's certain rules around not advertising hedge funds and all, all of that. But suffice so to say, I've gotten involved with the startup hedge fund. I am running a pool of capital for them. And that's a relatively new thing. I've only been at it for about uh, two months now, but it's going fairly well. And I'm thoroughly enjoying that so those are those are my big focuses for next year and in addition to everything else that I'm already doing um the traders corner dot London and the the small hedge fund that I'm involved with are going to be my big focuses for for next year.
1: okay, well, that sounds super um, Garth, I think yeah oh, let's wrap it up there uh, thanks for allowing me to do this it's It's really been great fun um I've always admired your your level of professionalism and your ability to convey trading concepts in a simple and easy to to use manner to others. Uh, What's your Twitter handle? So those that don't follow you already can follow you on Twitter because there's some great insights you put out there as well.
0: Yeah, thank you. Thanks for the compliment. I I really do appreciate that. Um, Yeah, my Twitter handle is at Traders Corner and then my my website is traderscorner.co.za where um, people can contact me there as well.
1: Great stuff. All right, Garth. Well, thanks. I found this a fascinating chat and I hope the listeners get a lot of benefit out of it. I've certainly learned a lot more about you and um, yeah, all the best for 2022 and the balance of, uh, of 2021 as the markets wind down in the next couple of weeks.
0: Oh, super Richard. Until thanks. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thanks for the for the opportunity and thanks for suggesting this. I've really enjoyed being on the other side of the microphone and uh, it's been great to chat to you. Thanks very much.
1: All right. No problem, Garth. Cheers.
0: Cheers. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of Talking with Traders, brought to you by IG, a world-leading CFD provider. We really are privileged to have such a leader in the field of online trading involved in this series. Please follow us on Facebook and engage with us there. And a reminder to make sure you subscribe to this series by clicking on the subscribe button on your favorite podcast app. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we'd also appreciate if you'd leave a review on the app too. Till next time.